0: We sang a song just a moment ago, and I asked Jeremy to sing that song, Nothing But the Blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I feel like I have been singing that song since I was a little kid. Since I learned to talk, I feel like I've heard that song and sung that song, and it has a very special place, as do many other songs that I, I grew up singing that I didn't really know the meaning of until I started singing growing in my faith and now uh, are so significant and just packed with, with truth and, and, uh, and, and theological truth. And it's just, uh, it, it, I, I love singing those, I love singing the newer worship songs, but I also love singing those, uh, those older songs. And I, again, I feel like I've been singing them for my entire life. And yet, the challenge for a lot of us is do we fully grasp those words that we just sang? Or the other songs that we have sung this morning or we're going to sing this morning, or any other songs that we may sing, I think the challenge for so many of us is that we sing about Jesus, and we sing about the cross, and even our kids, we sing, "Jesus loves me," and "Jesus loves the little children." And oh, yeah, we, we know all the words, but do we truly grasp what that truly means? Or is it just a story? You know, I think it's easy for us, even for us Christians, for it to be just a story, just a story about the cross. There's a lot of those who are not Christians who know the story of the cross, but for them it's just a story, right? And I wonder if sometimes we don't fall into that same trap as Christians. And we can walk through life and we can sing those songs and we can come to church and we can sing about the cross and we can celebrate this week and we can celebrate next week Easter Sunday and the resurrection of Jesus and resurrection day but do we truly grasp why it's so important because they're more than just stories We're going to take a break for as you probably noticed from our series The Good Life that we've been in basically since the beginning of the year, and we're going to do a little mini-series for the next couple of weeks, this week, and this week and next week, that I'm calling From Death to Life. And basically what we're going to do is we're going to take two weeks, and we're going to look this week, uh, today's Palm Sunday, but we're going to look at the death of Jesus and the cross and the significance of the cross and so many other things that really help to paint the picture of, of what is going on when Jesus dies on the cross. And then next week, we'll talk about the resurrection and the significance of Jesus rising from the dead and what that means for us as Christians. Christians. And here's what I know. I know that the story of next week, or yeah, of of next week, and everything we talk about with Jesus' resurrection and, and him rising from the dead is powerful. It is powerful. But it's not nearly as powerful unless you understand this story, and the story of the cross. And the story itself begins, besides beginning at the beginning, begins even before the beginning, before in the beginning. Those words in Genesis chapter 1, are you following me? I know that's a lot of beginnings, but before in the beginning, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It goes even before that, because there's a word that is consistently and continually used In Scripture, we find it throughout the pages of Scripture to define and describe God, who God is, what's He like, what's His character, what's His essence. And it's the word holy. God is holy. We don't use that word a whole lot, but God is holy. That word holy means set apart, it means to be different, to be one of a kind, unique. It literally means set apart. From everything else, and so, in other words, there is no one and no thing that is like God. God is like nothing else, and no thing is like God. He and He alone is holy that's His character, that's His essence. He is set apart from everything else. And so, just kind of picture this, this big circle, and encapsulated in this big circle is everything in the universe. Everything that we know, everything that we don't know, everything in the universe, and at the center of it all is God. Now, he's over it all too, but he's at the center of it. He's the most important aspect of it. He's the creator of it, right? And so he's at the center of it all. After all, he made it. And so he alone is at the very center. And so God would say, I am creator, I am holy, I am set apart. And not only am I at the center of the universe, but here's what I also desire. I also desire to be at the center of your life. The very, very center on the throne of your heart. Now, in some ways, that may sound arrogant, right? You know, God's making it all about him, right? It's all about him. He's got to be the center. How egotistical is God, right? But he's creator. He made it. He gets to set the rules. And actually, he's worthy of being at the center of it all. In fact, he's the only one who's worthy of being at the center of it all. In fact, if he's not worthy of being at the center of it all, then he's not God. He's not truly God. Think about the Ten Commandments. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. God gives uh, him the Ten Commandments. Moses comes back down, gives them to the people Do you remember what the first commandment is? God says, here's what you need to know. I want to put this at the very onset. You shall have no other gods before me. He says, I'm capital G God. I'm uppercase G God. Everything else is little g. They don't belong above me, so don't put them above above me. Why? Because he's a jealous God. That's what Exodus chapter uh, 34 verse 14 says. He's a jealous God. What's he jealous for? We think about that in bad terms. What's he jealous for? He's jealous for his holiness. He's jealous for his, his, his being set apart. He's jealous for him being not just at the center of the universe, but at the center of our lives, and there is room for no one else. So before it all began, at the very heart of God's character, is His holiness. And then God creates, right? So, so go back before God creates at the center of who He is. He's holy. He's just. He's perfect. And then He creates. And He creates out of that character of holiness. And God brings creation into existence. And so you have God in the beginning creating the heavens And the earth, he puts the sun right where he wants it, he puts the moon right where he wants it, he puts the stars right where he wants them, he creates the seas and the skies and the land, he creates the animals and the plants, and then finally he creates you and me. He creates human beings, or Adam and Eve in the very beginning. And so God creates everything, including Adam and Eve, and this is what God does in the very beginning. He says to Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, here's the garden. Here's the garden, and it is all yours. It's all yours, everything in it, except for what? Except for one tree. God says you can have everything in the garden. Don't tell a kid that, right? Like you can have everything in this room except for that one thing. What are they going to go to? You can have everything in this garden. It's all yours. Rule over it, except for this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says do not eat of that tree, because if you do, you will die. The end result is going to be death. Now, why would God put that tree in the garden is a good question. And I don't have all the answers to that because I'm not God and I don't have the the, the mind of God. I don't understand everything there is to know. But let me give you a couple of, of different things. I think part of it is free will, right? God gives Adam and Eve the choice of whether or not they're going to obey him or not. But I also think another reason God put it in the garden is as a reminder. It's a reminder that everything revolves around him, that he is creator and Adam Adam and Eve are not. They are the created. That he is God and they are not. And what he says goes, because it's human nature, right? That we wanna be at the center of it all. I mean, you think about it. You don't have to teach a kid that the universe revolves around them. In fact, you have to teach them the opposite, that the world does not revolve around them. That's why there's problems when that doesn't get taught, and then you have adults that think that the world revolves around them, right? Because it's human nature that we want to be at the center of it all. And and so God says, don't eat of that tree, but then who comes along? Satan, in the form of a serpent, and Satan tempts Adam and Eve to eat from the tree. And do you remember what the temptation was? Not just to eat from the tree, but literally Satan uses the oldest line in the book. He says, does God, did God really say that? Did, did God really say that if you ate from this tree, you would surely die? And then listen to what Satan says right after that. This is really the heart of it. He says, you won't surely die. God just knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be what? Like God knowing good from evil. In other words, put yourself at the center. Just put yourself in the center. That way you get to define what is truth and what is good and what is evil. You can define those things for yourself instead of having to to deal with God's definition of those things. Of course, you know the story. Satan's offer is too good to be true. Eve takes a bite, gives it to Adam, unsuspecting fellow that he is. He takes a bite and sin enters the world, all because Adam and Eve made a choice to disobey God. They made a choice to reject the truth that God is at the center of it all, that he's the one, not any of us, he is the one who defines what is true and what is good and what is evil. And they said, nope, we're gonna make the choice to put ourselves at the center of it all. We're gonna choose to make ourselves God. But that's called sin. Sin. And ultimately, it's their sin and ours as well that separates us from God. That moment that Adam and Eve chose to disobey, chose to define truth and good and evil for themselves, chose to put themselves at the center of it all, separation came between them and God. Because God is holy. And their sins separated them from a holy God. As Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 says, but your iniquities, your sins, have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. Fast forward a few centuries later, you've got the people of Israel, God's chosen people. He's just brought them out of slavery in Egypt, and they've started their journey to the promised land. But before they get to the promised land, God gives them plans to build what is a, a, what's called a tabernacle. And this is going to be God's dwelling, God's home, God's presence among his people. A little bit later, once they enter into the promised land, um, many years later, they end up building a permanent structure there in the land known as the temple. And in the temple, there were several courts and, and areas, and we won't get into all of those, but there was, there, was, there was one place in particular that was the most special place, the most important place in the temple, and that was called the Holy of Holies. And the only way into this area was blocked off by a curtain. There was a curtain in front of it. Now, this is not like a curtain like you have at your house, okay? It's not just any, any ordinary curtain. This curtain was 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and four inches thick. And you just think about that name, holy of holies. Sometimes it's called the most holy place. And if holy means set apart, then you can think of it in terms of the set apart, set apart place. It's a place where God dwells among his people. And so you have this holy of holies. And only one man, once a year, could go into this place. This wasn't a a come and go type of thing. One man, the high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement. And it's a reminder to the people, God is holy. God's holy. And you're separated from Him because of your sin. That's a big problem. God has a solution. And His solution is that in order for your sins to be covered so that you can be in His presence, something has to die. In order for sin to be covered, to be dealt with, something has to die. Now, why did God set it up that way? Again, I'm not God. I don't know all the reasons, but let me give you a couple of, of things to think about. For one, under the Old Testament sacrificial system, when you sacrificed an animal's life, it was a visceral symbol of the devastating results of sin. You know, we kind of overlook sin, right? That's eh, not that big. Of, I'm not that bad of a person, right? I don't do that stuff. And so you take an animal's life, you see the blood flow, and I don't want to get too graphic here, but it's a visceral reminder of the devastating results of sin. It's a symbol that the stakes are high. Human sin releases death out into the world. It's not just a mistake, it releases death. And so that animal's physical or excuse me, that animal's symbolic death was a physical symbol of what's really at stake, the life or death of the community and or /or the individual. However, the, the animal's death wasn't just a reminder of sin's tragic consequences. Its life was also offered as a symbolic substitute. If sin vandalizes God's world with pain and death, then God has every right to make people suffer the consequences to face those just consequences of what we deserve. Thankfully, God loves us, right? We just got through singing, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves the little children. That is true. That's truer than anything else can be true. And he doesn't want to kill his creation. And so this animal's life was symbolically offered as a ransom payment that would cover the people. Sometimes we, we refer to this idea as atonement. Maybe you've heard that word before. Literally, though, the word means to cover it's covered. Also for the Israelites, they saw the blood of an animal as a symbol of that animal's life itself. God says this in Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11, which I'm sure all of you have read through Leviticus multiple times over this past week. You've just, you know, plowed through it. But a lot of, a lot of good stuff that deals with a lot of, of what the sacrifice of Jesus has come to do. And, and this is what Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 says. For the life of a creature is in the blood. And I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement covers for one's life. Since blood represents life or the opposite of death, its sprinkling around the temple would act like kind of like a detergent. It would symbolically wash the temple of death, which is the natural result of sin and defilement. The end result was that God's presence stayed squarely in the midst of the people of Israel. In other words, an unholy people are made holy so that they can be in the presence of a holy God. Now I mentioned all of this happens after the Israelites leave Egyptian slavery. Let's go back though in the story to when they were in Egypt in slavery. God sends a man by the name of Moses, you've probably heard of him, to go to Pharaoh and to tell him to let my people go. He probably sang it though, right? Let my people go. That's probably what he did. He sang it instead of just speaking it. Moses says, or or Pharaoh says, I'm going to hard pass on that. I'm not letting them go. They're staying right where they are. Moses says, well, you might want to do that because if you don't, God's going to do some things that you're not going to like very much. But Pharaoh is stubborn and he refuses. And so God brings down these plagues on the land of Egypt. Ten plagues. Water turned, uh, Nile River, water in the Nile River turned to blood. Frogs and gnats and flies. There's one where all the livestock just fall dead. There's uh, boils that cover the people's skin. There's a hailstorm that just destroys everything. There's locusts that destroys everything else. There's complete and utter darkness that just covers everything. But the last one, the last one is the, is the harshest one. God says to Pharaoh through Moses that if you don't let my people go, the firstborn son of every family in Egypt will die. And of course, for the first nine plagues, the people of Israel don't experience any of them. It's all on the people of Egypt. And then to protect them from the results or the consequences of the 10th plague, God told the Israelites to take the blood from an unblemished lamb and to put it on the door frames of their homes. And so that when the angel of death comes, he would pass over their house and their first one, firstborn would be spared. That's where we get the story of Passover and the celebration of Passover. But all that being said, there's still a problem. There's still a problem. Listen to what the New Testament book of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse, verses one through four. It says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect, that's the problem, those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of the sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In other words, the blood of bulls and lambs and goats can't fully solve the sin problem. They can cover it, but they can't fully take it away. So what can be done? Well, from the foundation of the world, God knew what had to be done. And he had a plan, even before the foundation of the world. One of my favorite verses is in Galatians chapter 4. But when the set time had fully come, or at just the right time, God sent his son, Jesus now there are two things about Jesus that God makes, or that the Scripture makes very clear. One, He is fully God. He is fully divine. He is fully God. And secondly, He is also fully man. He is literally God in the flesh, as John chapter one verse fourteen says: "The Word, that's Jesus, became flesh, and He made His dwelling among us." The Apostle Paul says this about Jesus in Philippians chapter two. I love this passage: "Who Jesus, who being in very nature God." Did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage or or to be grasped or held on to. But rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. Jesus is God. But rather than holding on to that status, holding on to every right he had to stay in heaven, to stay under that status, he let go. And he became flesh. He became human. He became a servant, even. And he demonstrated for us how God desires for us to live. But he came to do much more than that. You know, when Jesus comes on the scene, there's an interaction between him and a guy by the name of John the Baptist that I think John gives us one of the most important descriptions of what Jesus came to do. And so you've got John the Baptist, who's actually Jesus' cousin, and John is out at the Jordan River and he's teaching and preaching and he's baptizing people out there. And so you've got a lot of God-fearing people seeking God. And one day he looks up, John does, and he sees Jesus coming towards him. And he says these words, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, I, I fully recognize that me just reading that for a lot of us doesn't have a lot of oomph like what do I do with that but for these people for centuries have been told by God himself they've got this whole thing set up if your sins are to be forgiven something has to die that was the whole point of the sacrificial system For centuries, that's what they've been taught. And also for centuries, they've been celebrating Passover and offering the sacrifice of an unblemished unblemished lamb to remember God leading his people out of death and out of bondage. And now here's John. And they've also been told there's going to come a Messiah. And now here's John saying, This is the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I guarantee you, their heads turned and their mouths dropped. And they wondered, is this really him? Is this really the one? Of course, we know the end of the story. We know that he was the promised Messiah. He was and still is the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in the end, he comes and does what he said he would do. He goes to the cross and he dies for the sins of the world. He dies for your sin and my sin. But why? Why? I mean, why did it have to be this way? Because from the foundation of the world, God has made it known that his character is what? He's holy. He's holy. He is totally perfect. He is totally just. He is totally set apart. And so even though these sacrifices could cover the sins of the people, the only thing that could truly satisfy the justice of a perfect and holy God is a perfect sacrifice. But there is no perfect sacrifice, right? Except for one. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14 says, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The perfect sacrifice. The only one who could truly satisfy the justice of a holy God. And so this perfect sacrifice, the only one who could truly satisfy the justice of a holy and perfect God, went to the cross and he died for the sins of the world. And listen to what the Gospel of Mark says. Remember the temple curtain? Listen to what Mark says in Mark chapter 15. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. And I think there's a reason. I don't think it's coincidental that uh, that Mark mentions that it is torn from top to bottom because if it's torn from the side, maybe someone can come in and say, remember how big this thing is. If it's torn from the side, somebody can come in and say, well, you know, somebody else did that. The priest did that. There is no doubt, right, who tore this thing. There's no doubt who's orchestrated this whole thing from the very beginning all the way up until now and will until the end of time. It is God himself who ripped that thing right down the middle. Why? Because at the moment, the perfect, obedient lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, at the moment when he says, it is finished, and he breathed breathed his last, when Jesus died, that separation was taken away. Now anybody can enter into the holy of holies and come into God's presence. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through, I love this, through the curtain that is his body. We don't need somebody else. You don't need me or a priest to offer a sacrifice. You can enter into the holy of holies. You can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, with God himself, because of what Jesus has done for you. Because at the moment Jesus died and he breathed his last, his sacrifice made a way for an unholy people, that's you and me, to enter into the presence and be with a holy God. Jesus literally did for us what we could not do for ourselves. So we sing nothing but the blood, and that's absolutely true. There is nothing but the blood of Jesus that can wash away my sins. I alluded to this earlier. Somebody might say, well, is my sin really that bad? I mean, is it really that bad? I mean, like, I'm not going to, like, point out certain things but you look i can look around the world and i can see some pretty bad stuff you know bad stuff going on i'm not that bad right i mean i'm basically a good person and we live in such a world where sin even in the church is accepted and celebrated and that it's easy to believe that we aren't that bad but do you remember what adam and eve's sin was eating fruit right so kids you don't have to eat fruit that's the message of the day Uh, No, that's not it. (laughs) That's what they did, but it's what it represented, right? What did it represent? Who's at the center? Who's going to define truth and good and evil? It represents Adam and Eve saying, you know what, God? I don't really trust you. And at the heart of sin, sin is saying, I trust me and my way of doing things, and my definition of what is right and what is wrong more than I trust yours, God. That's sin. And here's the deal. No matter what it is, no matter how big or small, no matter how deep or shallow, no matter how wide or narrow, no matter how often, sin is sin. And all of it separates you from a holy God. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 says, there is no one righteous, not even one. So you may be more righteous than the next guy, but you ain't righteous. Romans chapter three, verse 23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter six, verse 23 says, the wages of sin is death. So it's a big deal. It's a really big deal. But here's the good news. Listen to the end of that verse. But the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. We can do nothing to earn our forgiveness. And we've done everything to deserve punishment. But in God's great love for us, he sent his son. And he took our punishment on himself. In 2004, the movie Passion of the Christ came out. I don't know how many of you have seen that. It is one of those movies that is powerful and i don't get everything right there's some some things that you know but it's 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 a it's a powerful movie it's intense it's hard to watch if you've seen it it's graphic that's a lot of the nature of it it's it's you know doesn't hold back a whole lot of stuff and a lot of it has to do just with a seeing jesus suffer the way he did but just also the graphic nature of it and there's several powerful scenes in that movie, but there's one that sticks out to me. And, and if you've seen the movie, then you know what I'm talking about. And obviously, you've read scripture too, but it's it's right before Jesus goes to the cross and he's at this whipping post. And the soldiers take out these canes and they start beating him. And then they take out what's called a cat of 9 tails and it's called a cat of 9 tails because it's this leather strap that th- then has... Nine leather straps coming out from it. And each strap has little shards and pieces and jagged edges of bone and stone and metal and rock. And in the scene, the soldiers take it out. And with every whip, his flesh is being torn away. And I remember watching that. This is getting me emotional right now, just thinking about it. I remember watching that and tears are just streaming down my face. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm a grown man, you know? Not that grown man can't cry, but I'm a grown man. I, and I've I, I known the story of the cross since I was a little guy. I mean, I've been taught. I know the story. I've gone to church all my life. And yet just watching that, and thinking about what Jesus did for me because of my sin, it hit me on a level that I, I it just never had before. And it truly opened my eyes in a profound way to the depth and the darkness of my sin. And yet, also to the grace and the love of my God and my Savior. And when you truly realize the depth and the darkness of your sin, and yet you also realize the love that was displayed for you through what Jesus Christ did on the cross, you will never look at the cross in the same way again. It'll never be just a story.